I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book, a podcast for enthusiastic and engaged readers that will help you discover new books in all genres, give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and keep you up to date with what's happening in the literary world. In my interview with Alice Hoffman about her new book, Rules of Magic, we talked about witches, family, and family secrets, and feminism. And stay tuned after my conversation with Alice to hear my discussion with Ann Bogle, who is the host of the very popular book podcast, What Should I Read Next? But first, my conversation with Alice. We are joined today by Alice Hoffman, the New York Times bestselling author of Practical Magic here on Earth, the brilliant Dove Keepers, which, by the way, was praised by Toni Morrison as beautiful, harrowing, and a major contribution to 21st century literature. Alice has published over 30 novels, three books of short fiction, eight books for children and young adults. Over 20 translations have been made of her books, and most importantly, she's one of the nicest people you might ever meet. She is with us today to chat about her newest novel, The Rules of Magic, a prequel to the blockbuster book and film Practical Magic. Hoffman has us whisked up in an untaxing grown-up fairy tale that is thrilling and transportive. Publishers Weekly has picked it as one of its top 10 literary fiction books for the fall, and welcome Alice Hoffman. Oh, thank you. It's so nice to be here talking with you. I know. I feel like we, we were talking a little bit before. We haven't seen each other, so it's nice to see each other for a minute. I know. <laughs> So the rules of magic, um, we have the Owen sisters back from practical magic and not in their previous guise as elderly aunts, but as fledging witches in 60s New York City and now with a brother. When you were writing practical magic, had you envisioned the Owen sisters' youth? No, I never did. I mean, in in practical magic, they're the old aunties, um, Francis and Jet. I never thought about them when they were when they were young. But, you know, as time has gone by, I really have started to think about how interesting it is that you can never know the people in your family who are older, your mother, Mm. father, your aunts and uncles, because you never knew them when they were young. So you can never have a full picture of who they really are. And I wanted to go backward in time and see what these two women had been like when they were young, and their whole future was in front of them. And when you started writing about them, you know, some writers say that the characters sort of drive them, and other writers talk about that they have an image and they just sort of get it down. Which which yeah, you know, camp are you in, in this case? Well, you know, it's different for me with different books. Some some books I really have to struggle till, I, till the character comes to life, but in the case of Rules of Magic, I felt like the characters just walked in the door, and all I had to do was just kind of follow them around. And they seemed fully formed to me. You know, it's interesting that I hadn't thought about this idea that it's really hard to get to know people if you meet them older. Yeah. And, and even if they tell stories, do you think that's true? It's just impossible. I think it's really impossible. You know, I always think about my grandmother telling me that every time she passed by a mirror, she was shocked by the person looking back at her. Mm. And she always thought she was going to see a girl of 16. Yeah. And it made me realize, you know, I didn't know her really. I didn't know the the her that she carried around inside of her. Yeah. And I feel the same way about me now, you know. The people who really know me are the people who I've known since kindergarten. 
Yeah. You know, I mean, they they know who I was. You know, there was a beautiful line uh, in a book, at the very end of a book that Anne Royfe wrote called Epilogue about losing her husband. And she had met her husband, I think, like in Brooklyn when they were teenagers. And at the end of the book, she talked about that the part of the loss that she had not imagined was with her husband passing, she lost her 16-year-old self. Yeah. Which is kind of what you're talking about. It really is. I mean, I really do feel that way. And also for me personally, to go back, um, these characters are young in the 60s, and that's, you know, when I was young. And so for me to go back and write about the 60s, it was, you know, really moving and emotional for me. And I felt almost like I was time traveling with them, you know, and going backward in time to the places that I used to hang out in, Washington Square and Greenwich Village. And, you know, for me, it was just kind of a lovely time-traveling experience to write about that. Yeah, so let's talk about your your depictions of the village. So I, too, was in New York um, as, as a visitor. I mean, I was born in New York, but then had moved out, but had been spent plenty of time in the 60s in New York. And you spend a lot of time depicting the village in the 60s, which is palpable in the way you're describing it. And it made me wonder, with downtown being so chic now, do you think any of that village vibe is left? You know, I think what, you know, I used to go there like every Saturday. I used to escape from Long Island and go to Grand Village. And for me, it was like the big, great, huge, interesting world. And I still think, you know, when I was doing my research and wandering around the village, I still feel like, you know, kids are still going there for the same reason. You know, they're still in Washington Square on Saturdays. They're still looking for that bigger world. You know, it's changed. It's not as gritty. There's not this folk scene or this music scene. But I think it still feels like the center of something. Yeah. I mean, I, I love New York. So what? what Me too. I <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love New York. I I, I was on, I was on the train recently. Um, going into New York to actually to interview an author, and I was with one of the young sound engineers uh, uh-huh. that works here where we produce it, uh, this company called CRN, and he was saying how he, the city's too much for him. I know. You know. For me, it's funny because I love being there, but I find, like, I can't really write there. Because yeah. There's so many things to do, and it's so exciting, and you just kind of want to be on the street. For me, I feel like it's not a good place for a writer. Right, because you can't you can't sequester yourself and remove yourself from the from the world of that. Right. I mean, I did when I was younger and living there full time, but now I have a harder time because I'm just so drawn into kind of the heart of New York when I'm there. Yeah, and you get down there pretty frequently. Yeah, I do. I've lived in Chelsea on and off for you know my whole adult life, and I'm still there part of the time. And I just feel, you know, it's just really inspiring. I mean, New York is such a special place, and I think one of the things about the Rules of Magic is that it feels kind of like a love song to New York, especially New York of those times where you could just, you know, all these famous people were at all these tiny clubs, and just life was happening on the street, and it was so exciting and thrilling. And I still think it is for when you're young and you come to New York from someplace else, it is still, like, so thrilling. Alice, I thought in Rules of Magic, you did a brilliant job. I was so transported to those streets and neighborhoods in that time. And it, 
it, it made me wonder, is 44 Greenwich Avenue, is there really a building there? You know, it's so funny to bring that up because I was going to talk about that. Yes, that was my agent, Elaine Markson, had her office at 44 Greenwich Avenue for about 40-something years. It was where I started out being a writer. And, you know, in her office, I mean, all of these iconic figures like Grace Pelly was the client, Tilly Olsen, and Abby Hoffman, who I used to get billed for because we were both A. Hoffman and she was <laughs> lending him money. And it was just, she was such a really Greenwich Village person and knew every all of these incredible writers. And it was for me, it was such a magical place. And it's, I feel like my life started there. And in the book, really, the characters, when they move downtown, their lives just open up. Yeah. And so for me, it's a very special place. The office is no longer there, but the but the building is still there. Oh, I'm going to go walk by the building. I, w- I was in New York the other day, and I but I didn't think to check the address. It only occurred to me yesterday. Well, that's exciting. I love that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, most all the places in the village are real, and that, that place definitely is real. And I teach literature, and for all these writers who just, you know, wouldn't have existed without her backing and support. Well, you know, you know, great, great, great Kelly. Really, I idolized her when I was starting. I still do. Ah. She was an amazing writer, and when I was starting out, I felt like, you know, I didn't know if I could write, quote-unquote, great literature. Could women do that? Because great literature seemed to be about war. And then I read <laughs> then I read Grace Pelley, yeah. and I thought, oh, my gosh. Or Tilly you Olson, know, you know, Tell Me a yeah. Riddle is, is still one of my, like, top 25. She wrote Tell Me a Riddle and the Shawl, right? That's in, like, one little conne- collection, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, what an amazing person. And both of them really didn't write that much. You know, it's like I think their fans wanted them to write more. But, like, you know, life just took over and, and they and they didn't, you know, write as much as we would have maybe hoped they would have. Yeah, one of my favorite events that I attended, and I think I have this right, was a 50th anniversary event that was held for the, it was the 50th anniversary of Farrar, and Grace Paley was there. Didn't Farrar publish her first book? Yes, I think they did, and I think they published all her books. She never left them. I got to know her a little bit, and we did an event together um, up here in Cambridge, and I forgot. It was somehow political, and I don't remember that, but, you know, I was kind of nervous, and I said, um, and Grace was so tiny, she stood on a box yeah. when she read I, I said, what What will we do if they kind of attack us and say something, you know, you know, it was, people start, you know, saying things and, and, and are unhappy with us. She said, honey, we'll just sink to their level. So, Alice, I want to go back to Rules of Magic uh, for a second, because as I was reading the book, which I thought was just fabulous on a couple of levels that we'll talk about, one idea popped into my head, which is either not original or crazy, uh, (laughs) when I thought about the Owens. And that is that the Salem witch trials and the depiction of witches is or was the original form of backlash of women of independence and confidence. You are 100 percent right, because those women who were accused of witchcraft were usually either independent, financially independent, they had land, they were old, or they were young, but they were kind of on the outskirts of things, and very often their land and their property and their money was taken from them. And, you know, it's so interesting because um, 
I did some research. I wrote a book about the Spanish Inquisition, and I did some research about um, witchcraft at the same time. And I and what I found out was that the only European countries that did not have witch witchcraft or this you know witch hunt were Spain and Portugal because instead they had the Inquisition. They went after Jews. It's like they're always going after the outsider, and usually it's the easiest thing for them to do is to go after women. And I think it's, you know, right now at this time with this Me Too phenomenon that's happening that's so powerful, uh, the whole idea about witches and women on the fringes and nasty women and all of this kind of stuff that's boiling to the surface, I think this is um, something that I was really starting to think about when I was writing this book about how things seem to have changed so much in the 60s and 70s for women. And now, maybe not so much. Now it seems like maybe there are things that really haven't changed at all. Yeah, and you know, Alice, I started my working career in 1970 and worked in a male field. And I think the 68-year-old me is shocked that there actually isn't more progress. And when I think about these, I guess that's 40 years, right? Um, Or almost 50 years ago of starting to work that I think when women reach peaks, there's, you know, the there's been too much of an ebb and flow. And, you know, maybe at each ebb, there's more women sticking at the top. But mm-hmm. then there's this sort of, you know, I almost envision like an undertow that goes on that pulls them back. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I think it's happening in Hollywood, what's happening in Hollywood is that you know, there aren't really that many women in power. And there were for a while. You know, I had so many friends who were like the head of the studio, you know, like young women who kind of took over. Right. And that's just not so true anymore. And, you know, the percentage of women in directors, I don't know exactly what it is, but I think it's something like 10 percent. And it's just ridiculous. So, Alice, you you write about which is and magic, um, I consider it a thread. I think I've read most of your books, and it's a thread. What attracted you to magic and witches in the first place? Well, you know, I, I really feel like, you know, what you read as a as a child affects you enormously as who you become as a writer and who you become as a person. And for me, you know, I grew up reading fairy tales and folk tales and myths, and all of the books that I read as a child had magic associated with them. You know, I love this guy, Edward Eager from mm-hmm. Connecticut. Oh, he's such a wonderful writer. I loved Ray Bradbury when I got to be a little older. I think he's just such an incredible writer. And I think, you know, for me, it's not a choice. I mean, for me, magic and literature are just like wound together, braided together. They are, they exist together. And, you know, I always feel that realism is kind of the new kid on the block and that really, <laughs> you know, literature is magic. Like the Greek myths and... Yeah. One of the themes in Rules of Magic is about family secrets and family curses. Yes. And when I think about them, that has a universal quality. It's not merely the magical element of family secrets and family curses. Yeah. I think in Rules of Magic, there's a magic element to the to the curse that they carry with them, and the curse is that love is dangerous, and anyone they love will come to ruin, and they have to kind of fight that fate, and and you know learn that they have to love anyway, and that love really is the only remedy. But I think for all of us, I think you know the family secrets and family curses that are handed down 
sometimes unspoken and unspoken ways, you know, the fears that we get from our parents and grandparents, the stories that come down, the way people treat each other, you know, how things repeat themselves in families, you mm. know. Um, I think everybody can relate to that, really. I, well, I do, too. And that when I, when I thought about it, um, obviously theirs is magical. They can, the people they love might come to real harm and how they cope with the ramifications or overcome that. But I think I think you're exactly right, Alice. I see family secrets permeating houses in ways that, for all the talk, talk, talk that goes on these days, are somehow still not talked about in many houses, but but shape people. Did you find, were there secrets in your family growing up that you think shaped you? Who knows? They were kept secret. I still don't know they are. <laughs> you still don't know. No, but I, I definitely remember. I mean, for me, when I was growing up, my parents got divorced when I was eight. And really, I didn't meet enough person whose parents were divorced until I went to college. I mean, yeah. that's how unusual it was then. And I remember our parents calling us in and saying, we have a secret and you can't tell anyone. And, you know, maybe for me that started, I started thinking about those sorts of things at that point. You know, that families have secrets and they pass them down to their children, you know, and and their children are affected by them. And look, you know, whether you're the best parent in the world, you know, it still happens. You have things happen in your family that, that kind of get get passed on in a way. Yeah. And I must have got a lot of therapy. <laughs> well, and you know what? No one, I think the thing that you know as you get older is no one's protected from those. There's no amount of money or intelligence that yeah. necessarily makes you not vulnerable to what might be a family secret. You know, you're so right. And I think one of the things in the book is that, you know, everyone is so vulnerable and they're trying not to be vulnerable, my characters. And, they, you know, in order to be human, and even though they're witches, they're also human. You know, in order to be human, you have to be vulnerable. And that means you're going to be hurt. And that's just what life is. Life is about you know, being willing to be hurt so that you can be human. Yeah. And, you know, the way I think about Vincent, so the Owen sisters in Practical Magic are the aunts. Uh, they're elderly. And in Practical Magic, there was no brother. No. And, you know, it's funny. I don't want to talk about him too much because he, he has a secret that I, I think is kind of a spoiler if we reveal yeah, it. Yeah, let's not. No, it's not, but, but the thing that happened to me in writing him, and he was such an interesting character for me, is that I found out what his secret was when he found out. We both found out together. Really? You know, I didn't know when I started the book. He he didn't know when I started the book, and, you know, we discovered it together. It was, I, that's never happened to me before with a character. And why do you <laughs> think it happened with him? I mean, I really don't know. It was just a process, and as he... You know, I think sometimes you just kind of write your way into a story and you write your way into a character. And this is who this is who he was. And I had to learn who he was. I mean, it's happened to me before with characters, but not to this extent of just I really didn't know something about him that was very major. You know, the other thing that I thought you accomplished in this book, which sort of took me aback, is... I normally find myself attached to a character and understand a character more than anybody else, any of the other characters. But in this case, both all Francis Jett and Vincent were so clear to me. I was so attached to them Aww. and developed such an understanding of each one of them. 
was that was pretty that was pretty magical, Alice. <laughs> Thank you so much for saying that. I mean, that means so much to me. And you know, I I felt the same way too. I mean, I felt very attached to all three of them. And you know, if somebody said well, who was your favorite, I, I couldn't say. You know, it was almost like they were my children. You know, it's very say who's your favorite child. Yeah, I really felt close, and they're very different. But and they all, and they're all seem to be learning different lessons, but they're really all learning the same lesson. You know, and they're very close to each other, and, you know, it's almost as if they, you know, they couldn't survive without each other. Yeah. You know, they really need each other. And what made you, what made you write a prequel and not a sequel, and why now? Well, you know, I think, you know, I've been thinking about it for a long time, and I've had readers writing to me saying, you know, I think there's more about this. They, I think most people thought about it a sequel. But really, like, I'm always interested in the history of what made mm. a family and what made somebody who they were. But for me, it just seemed the most natural thing on earth to go backward rather than to go forward. And do you think we'll hear more about the Owens? I hope so, because I feel like there's more There's more to tell. There's more stories. And Alice, were you involved in the making of the Practical Magic movie? Well, I wasn't really, I wasn't involved. I didn't write the screenplay. They had, I think, three screenwriters. Um, but Sandra Bullock was the producer, and she was incredibly kind to me. And I went out to the set to visit, and um, in Hollywood, they had two sets, one in Hollywood and one, they built the exterior of the house on an island off of Seattle, off of Washington State. Um, but um, dur- actually, during the making of the movie, after I went out, I was going to go again, and they were very, very nice to me, but I discovered that I had breast cancer, so I'm a 20-year survivor, and, you know, I never went back out to the movie, and I, I kind of, you know, kind of walked away a little bit just because I, you know, I... I was in treatment. But yeah. I, I mean, I do think that the movie is very different than the book in some ways, but I, but I love it. And I think it's so much fun. And it's really, over the years, it's really become like a cult classic that people watch every Halloween. I know. That's what, and, yeah, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say I, I never saw the movie. I mean, I read was, the book, but I never saw the, the movie. <laughs> well, you know, one of the wonderful things about the movie is the, the women who are in it. You know, it's, it's Diane Weiss, Dr. Channing, play the older aunts and Nicole Kidman and Sandra Bullock are the younger women and they are great and it's so nice to see a movie with all those women and a movie about sisterhood and friendship and power. Yeah. Now the other character, the two other major characters in the book and I was riveted by both of them. One was April uh, that was a cousin and sort of the renegade but the one that she fascinated me but I loved the the atmosphere that you created at Aunt Isabel. So Aunt Isabel lives in Massachusetts, and yeah. Francis and Jet and Vincent go up there to visit, and this sort of unleashes their developing an affection and a freedom about their magic. What right. was it that was the that the sort of driver for you of that entire atmosphere and how? Isabel was both welcomed and um, patronized. No, no, patronized. Welcomed and uh, I'm trying to think of the right word for everyone who came to sought her out for advice. Yeah, they sought her out. She was an outcast, and yet they sought her out. Yeah, you know, it's economy. It's like you know they they didn't want to be seen with her, but when they needed something from her, people in town came to see her. Because she was very wise, healer, but they were also kind of afraid of her because she's kind of a powerful, older, single woman. And it's just what we were talking about, that that is a scary 
figure. You know, it's become a very twisted figure in myth and fairy tale. You know, I think they've twisted who the witch really is rather than the wise woman or the goddess or something like that. Um, you know, for me, Isabel is so appealing and I loved her because I think there's just so much you can learn from your older relatives and you're so lucky if you have someone older mm. that you're close to. I mean, for me, it was my grandmother who was, who was, you know, just so important to me and, you know, I don't know how I could have survived without her, but I just think if you have a connection with the older relative, it can really just change your life. And that's what happens to the, to them, to the Owen siblings when they go up for the summer. They have this instant connection with her, even though she's a little scary. Um, and even though she tells them things that, that they don't really want to know, um, she accepts them. And was you know, she modeled on your grandmother at all? Not really. You know, she wasn't my grandmother. You know, she's a Russian Jew uh, from New York City, who lived in New York City. But I think the connection was kind of a model. By right. My connection with my grandmother is feeling like somebody you could really depend on. And that's who Isabel is. Well, and there was another there was another element of her, Alice, that I found so appealing. And that is without being emotional or or mushy in any way, that characters or people like Isabel give kids and her and those who sought out her advice permission to be themselves. Yeah. That there was something liberating about the way in which she approached people, her nieces and nephew and um, those that came to her, allowed them to be liberated from whatever constraints they had conjured up for themselves and could be themselves, which to me is another theme in your your book is the is the power of allowing yourself to be your natural self. Well, I think that's you know I, I think you're it's exactly right. I think that's what it's really about, and that's the difficulty, and it is for all of us. I mean, it's a process about you know kind of learning who you are and then accepting who you are. You know, you're not going to be you know, this kind of fantasy version of who you think you should be or mm. who people want you to be. And I think it's just very, it's a real process to accept who you are. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, you know, before I, I, I ask you a couple of last questions, I do, I, I, you know, I encourage our listeners who haven't read the book to appreciate this dimension of the book that, you know, there was, there was in reading it, for one, you become very immersed in the characters. But I think the way you introduce these two concepts that we're talking about, one is the role of family secrets, and two is the challenge and difficulty, yet the power of being yourselves. You you bring those about in the most natural storytelling way where you're almost surprised as the reader, the impact it's having on how you think about those two concepts. Uh, you know, I, that's kind of what I was thinking. You know, when I think about, I think that's what fairy tales do. You know, you, you're reading a story and it's about something. It's the outer story, but it, the inner story, the heart of the story, you're learning something about yourself mm. and how you feel. Right. And that's what I, that's what I think the rules of magic can do is 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 it show I think it shows 
the importance of, of kind of accepting who you are. Yeah, but it does it without leading the witness. You know that. <laughs> it, <laughs> do you know what I mean? That you that sort of grows on you as you read the book. You're not quite aware of it along the way. Well, I think that's great. I think that's like in a fairy tale. You're you're going on this, this journey, you know, through the woods, and on the way, you find out all these things that you didn't expect to find out. So, yeah, you know. So thank you. Yeah, I, I think that's great if that's what happens. I know. it's. I, I wish I could be more clever than to say something other than the rules of magic is magical, but <laughs> but it is. <laughs> so, it, but, you know, it was for me writing it. I, it really transported me, and that's kind of what I want as a reader and a writer both. More than other books, Alice? Yes, I think different books are different. And yeah. for me, this was such, it was such a pleasure. And, you know, I just felt like, um, I didn't want to leave that world or those people. Yeah, neither did I. <laughs> neither did I. I was like thinking about going back and reading. Actually, I thought about going back to read Practical Magic. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually, I'm actually doing that right now. <laughs> we could read to each other, Alice. <laughs> so, Alice, the, the question I'd like to ask authors is, what's the book that changed your life? Uh, you know, I, I actually think the book that really changed my life I think the book that changed my life was um, Catcher in the Rye. Mm. Because I think when I found that book, it was on my mother's bookshelf, and I read that book, I felt so connected, and I felt like this is what a novel could do. Mm. It, can, it can, not only do you feel like you know the character, but you feel like the character knows you. Mm. That was, you know, I'm not saying it's my favorite book. You know, I'm in love with Wuthering Heights. Ray Bradbury was incredibly important to me. But when I read that book, I felt like, the power of what a novel could do psychologically. Mm. How old were you? I was probably about 12, I think. Yeah, that's about when I think I read it. Also set in New York, in the magic of New York, right? Right. And you really felt, I don't know, somehow reading that book, you felt known. Mm. And and that was an intense experience. Yeah, and and probably the first time you realized a book could do that. Yes, it was. Yeah. It really was. And what are you reading now, Alice? Well, now, you know, for me, when I'm writing, I'm not really, I'm not reading. Right. So, you know, usually I feel lucky if I'm in a book tour, I get to read all these books that I that I wouldn't ordinarily have time to read. And um, so lately I've just been reading books that I've really enjoyed. Um, I've read Alice McDermott's new book, um, The Ninth Hour, which I love. Yeah. I've read The Burning Girl by Claire Massoud, which I thought was wonderful. Um I read The Weight of Ink by Rachel Kadish, which is a big, big historical novel that's terrific. And that's really all I have time to What are you working on now, Alice? Uh, well, you know, I'm working on, actually, I'm doing something really different. I'm working on a fairy tale and knitting book with my cousin, Lisa Hoffman, the master knitter. And we've been doing columns for Fairy Magazine, and now we're doing a book, and it'll be out next fall. What? Do you knit? I knit poorly. But I think knitting is really important for writers because it teaches you so many things that I think you need to know as a writer. Um, I, I really think it's important how, you you know, you have to deconstruct things and take things apart, redo them. And um, I don't know. I think it's a great thing for a writer to do. But um, this has been a really – it's really been fun to, you know, have – to work with my cousin and to work with fairy tales. And um, I can't wait for this book, Alice. Yeah, that's it's been fun. You know, my mother – was a like an unbelievable knitter, but you know she was in a refugee and never really learned how to fa- follow knitting patterns. But you could hold anything up to her and say, and "Make that." 
know? That's astounding. And, and, you know, I think there's a lot in, like, women's arts or women's, you know, I think knitting and sewing and weaving and writing all have a lot in common. Mm. You know, I do not knit well, but period, like last year I got it in my head I was going to knit cowls for all the women uh, that are on the management team at RJ Joya's. Uh-huh. And I... I, you know, I got all this like very thick yarn. I got a very easy pattern and I forgot how meditative knitting can be. I know. I'm it's so excited about who's publishing the book. It's Adams Media and they're part of Simon & Schuster and Simon & Schuster, my publisher. So it's, it works out really well. And, you know, I'm working on a novel also, but, you know, I tend to not talk about a novel before I yeah. before it's really done, because, I, you know, you never know whether it's, it's going to work or not, whether it's going to come to life or not. So uh, let's just see what happens. Well, Alice, thank you so much for joining us on Just the Right Book. Thank you for continuing to uh, be so good to independent booksellers. Thank you for continuing um, to write and just tell great stories that continue to both charm and enrich us. It's it's oh. it's just a pleasure. It's a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you for supporting writers the way you do, Roxanne. I'm I am very grateful to you, as as is everyone out there writing away. Thank you. Well, thanks. So, Alice, maybe we'll see each other for real soon. I really hope we will. Perfect. That'd be great, Alice. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, really. Thanks again to Alice Hoffman. Let's hear from Ann Bogle, the voice behind the blog Modern Mrs. Darcy and the host of the book podcast What Should I Read Next? We are joined today on Just the Right Book by Ann Bogle. She is the creator of the popular blog Modern Mrs. Darcy. She's got over a half a million unique visitors every month, which is pretty crazy. And she is the host of a podcast that is just delicious called What Should I Read Next? Uh, She keeps her tens of thousands of followers on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram happy every day. And she's just known as a Uber reader, a tastemaker, and she's even an author of a book called Reading People, uh, which we will talk with her a little bit about. And today she's joining us from Louisville, Kentucky. And welcome to Just the Right Book. Oh, thank you for having me. So, Anne, a half a million readers, that feels like a lot of responsibility on your blog. Oh, it really does sometimes. And how long have you been doing the blog? Since 2011. And what got you started on doing it? Oh, actually, it was my husband. We were having one of those New Year's time conversations about, you know, what? how did the year before go? What do we want to do more of? What do we never want to do again? And what were we hoping for in the year to come? And we had small kids at the time. They were in bed, so we had takeout sushi and a bottle of wine. And my husband had done some business blogging the previous year, and I said, you should do more of that. You seem to really enjoy it. And he said, eh, you know, I, maybe, but I've been thinking about who should really start a blog. And I didn't read blogs except his at the time. So I'm like, okay, who? Who are you thinking of? And he said, you, you are out of your mind. That is never happening. I don't even read blogs. And I think 20 minutes later, I was making making blog name lists and coming up with category titles. I was very persuadable. So he knew you better than you might have been letting yourself know yourself. Apparently. 
And what were you doing before that? Uh, property law. Wow. You know, the obvious path to book blogging. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's like me going from a tax accountant to a bookseller. Well, it is true, though, if your favorite part of your job is writing legal briefs, even if they're about property line disputes, it may be a sign that moving more into the wordy spectrum of professions wouldn't be a terrible idea. Yeah, and how often do you post a blog? Oh, well, um, when I'm on book deadline, not as much as I did back in 2011. It's usually three or four times a week. That's a lot. It is a lot. And does it ever feel, I mean, I I was thinking about this because you do a podcast a week. You're Mm -hmm. posting this blog. You know, you have what my son would probably call admin, you know, like, we would call it life. Um, <laughs> and so does it ever feel onerous to be preparing for the podcast, writing these blogs, or do you ever feel like you're running out of ideas? Uh, well, there are definitely scarce resources around here, but the ideas are not one of them. Yeah. Um, I, I really love it. I feel like this is very uncool to say in 2017, 2018, but I love blogging. And I know that the pundits have been saying for years that it's dead and nobody's going to read blogs anymore, and that's fine. You know, they can keep going, but we're still posting at Modern Mrs. Darcy. And by we, I mean me. Like, I do have a team, but it's all my writing. Uh, I just really love being able to think through my own thoughts. So one of the reasons I love blogging is completely selfish, and that is that it helps me figure out what I'm thinking by writing. And I love that. And I love how when I wrote Reading People, and I'm working on a book now that's coming out next fall, um, like I finished writing that book that's coming out on September 4th. But I could write a blog post right now, and people could be interacting with it in an hour. And I really like the balance there. So having some work that will not see the light of day for a year, but then being able to have a conversation about that's what immediate. I'm thinking of right now in almost real time on the blog, um, it's just, it's so much fun. And I'm sure you have tons, well, I listen to your podcast, so I know you have tons of respect for fellow readers and get so many great ideas from them. And I just love being able to provide a place for those conversations about the important things in life where those conversations can unfold every day. And I know that everybody also says comment sections are dead, but I really think that book people are the best people and Modern Mrs. Darcy readers are cream among them. And I'm just so grateful for the conversation that can go on there because that space does exist for those conversations to happen. So something just occurred to me as I was listening to you talk about this. So one of the blogs of yours that I read, I think talks about um, like over the hot, this is a blog from maybe one or two or three years ago, where you talk about (laughs) the holidays and um, that you're an introvert and therefore going to these parties and doing all of that uses energy. Oh, yeah. So by having a conversation through your blogs and the comments, does that work for you because it doesn't take the kind of energy that a conversation might take in a crowded room? It is very true that when you're talking online, like on my on my own blog, I'm absolutely having that conversation on my terms. Yeah. And I don't have to do my hair right. or put on shoes. So that is very, very freeing in that sense. I hadn't thought about that, that it's a robust way of engaging with people, but in a very different dimension. Yes, yes, definitely. And 
I, I am an introvert, and I really appreciate how when I write a blog post, what I'm really doing is working out the ideas in my own head. Like, it's a great platform to think that through. But we all spend time in our own heads introverting and out in the world conversing with others extroverting, and we, we all have our personal balance. I need more introverting than extroverting, which is what makes me an introvert. But Mm. I do love how I can, because of the blog, I can sculpt these ideas and really figure out what do I think here or or figure out like what explains a certain situation or why a certain thing is the way it is in the world. So to give our listeners a couple of ideas, because I think your blogs are so much fun. So you might have something like a quick overview of the 11 important literary awards or uh, the best audio books to listen to in six hours or less, or something that a lot of people will be thinking about these days for easy gifts for the men in your life or stocking stuffers, or your seven favorite Jane Austen retellings. So they're fun and quick, and you learn something. It makes you think about something else you want to read or do. So I can see why even getting to think of them would be a lot of fun. It is fun. In my guiding light, which I don't actually know if I talk about anywhere on the blog, but Emily Dickinson is our spirit guide here. Um, I love her poem, I Dwell in Possibility. And my favorite thing to do, really what I try to do in almost every post on Modern Mrs. Darcy, is look at something familiar to readers from an unfamiliar angle, like that Mm. invite people to consider ideas they think they know pretty well, but from a different perspective. There's a quote from... Italo Calvino, I don't know that I'm saying his name right, but he talks about a classic as being something that rests in your unconscious but rearranges your brain. Yes, that and is lovely. He has, some, he has some really snappy quotes about books. Yeah. I don't know how to say his name either. I, I, I always see it in print and write it on the blog. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So tell us about your book. I have not read it, but I was fascinated and will read it. It's called Reading People, How Seeing the World Through the Lens of Personality Changes Everything. Yes, well, we could go right back to Emily Dickinson on this. So in the book, I talk about how understanding seven of the more popular personality frameworks has really improved my life by changing the way I understand myself and what I need and how I work and how I interact with others, you know, my most important relationships and how I interact with others, understanding the same thing about other people. And what I love about these personality frameworks and why I found them so useful is that just like on the blog, I try to invite people to consider a familiar idea from a fresh perspective, I find that these personality frameworks, and by those I'm talking about things like the Myers-Briggs type indicator Mm -hmm. or Gary Chapman's five love languages or the Enneagram, they give you a structured way to think about yourself and others. So in the book, I take seven of the most popular frameworks and I just tell, well, I explain how they work and then I just tell tons of stories about the difference they've made in my life, how I put them into practice in my life, how other people have put them into practice in their own lives, just to give readers lots and lots of good ideas about how they can understand and also importantly apply this information in their own life. Yeah, we've done that with management teams uh, when I was in corporate America or in the bookstore because I think one of the things in a business environment that it does is it helps you understand the perspective. And if you're you're the kind of person that always needs to give advice and the other person's like offended that you're jumping to a conclusion by understanding they're that type, you sort of come up with little buzzwords or like little uh, tricks to say, okay, you, you're giving advice. Remember, that's what you like to do. But 
that's not what we're doing here. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it's it still is amazing to me how much understanding why we do what we do or why other people do what they do, even if their behavior doesn't change at all. But just understanding the why removes the emotions from the situation and things that previously really bothered us suddenly become like descriptions of fact, totally neutral. Or when we understand why we do what we do, it no longer becomes like, oh, the thing about us that we just can't stop. But we can reflectively say, oh, this is why this is happening. And maybe we want to do something about it. Maybe we don't. But just being able to explain what is happening and the reason totally changes the way we interact. Yeah, I'm very excited about reading your book. What's your new book going to be on? It's going to be Essays on the Reading Life, Mm. back in my happy, comfortable wheelhouse. Who's going to publish it, Anne? It's coming from Baker Baker Books. Fantastic. And it's coming September 4th. It's called I'd Rather Be Reading The Delights (laughs) and Dilemmas of the Reading Life. It's going to be beautiful. And we're doing, we're talking cover design right now. And I am really excited about talking about books and reading, my favorite things. Uh, One thing that I wondered about when I was realizing how many uh, uh, viewers you have or listeners, how do you handle talking about a book you don't like? Oh, it's tricky. Um, Well, you know, it can be tricky, especially because even before I was writing books myself, I'm, I'm, always very aware that a real person wrote a certain book. Um, My general assumption is that not every book is for every reader, and Mm. that's fine. Now, the flip side, like I have an editor friend who says, there's no such thing as a bad book, just a book that hasn't found the right reader. (laughs) That might be stretching it a bit, especially in these days where I feel like a lot is rushed to press. But, But I think that we can talk about a book, even if we don't love a book, which is something I do all the time. Um, what, I, what I try to do personally when I'm evaluating a book is think, did it do what the author set out to do? Right. And then whether or not, I, well, the answer is either yes or no, and you can evaluate it on those merits, although that sounds very analytical, and I'm not always you know, sitting there with my list of pros and cons when I'm evaluating a book. But either the author accomplished what they set out to do to some degree, or they didn't. And then the question next is, is it to my taste? Because I've read heaps of books, I bet all readers have, where they can objectively see that book was well executed. But that doesn't mean that I am necessarily going to love it, Mm. depending on, um, you know, the themes or the content or the style of writing. You know, people like different things, and that's fine. Right, because your role either in the blog or the podcast is different than, let's say, a book critic would be, where their job is to evaluate the book and they don't necessarily, it's not logical that they're only going to critique books they love. This is true. And I do very, very few traditional book reviews. Yeah. Uh, and and for that reason, and I think there's a place for them. And I, I love to read a good book review, whether or not I read the book, because the good, I mean, the book review is an art form. I and agree. as a reader... Yeah, as a reader, I love reading a good book review, but my goal on the blog is to help readers get more out of their reading life, and just being able to choose to share books that I really enjoyed or that I think my readers will enjoy through the lens of bookish enthusiasm, I think serves my audience well, and it's a lot more fun for me, which also probably serves my audience well, than 
it would be to devote hours and hours of time to write about one book. Yeah. Now, there are times when I do that, but they are few and far between, and it must be a very special book for me to want to do that. So what are you loving? What books are you loving right now? Oh, right now I'm obsessed with Maggie O'Farrell. Mm. I, I just read This Must Be the Place recently. and she's, a, she's an Irish writer? You know, I'm not sure she's Irish or British. Um, the, the last book I read by her, Instructions for a Heat Wave, was set in Ireland. Um, I'll look it up. But, yeah, yeah, that's worth looking. I would, I would like to know that. But Tell me about I, the book. Oh, yeah. Um, so this must be the place which I cannot wait to start again. And you know that's a good sign if you finish the book. Yep. All you want to do is read it again as soon as possible. It's a sweeping family saga. The structure is a little unconventional. She bounces back and forth in time, spanning something like 40 years. And she uses many different points of view to tell her story. At the heart of the story is a relationship between a husband and wife. When they met, um, she was a film star who wanted out of the celebrity circus so much that she faked her own death and disappeared. Immediately. <laughs> found her and knew that she was, in fact, disappeared someplace, but but they didn't know where she was. But this man who was in Ireland to bury his father's ashes stumbles upon this woman and her son when he has car trouble, and he thinks she looks familiar, but he's not sure why. But that was the beginning of their relationship. My personal pet peeve in contemporary fiction is a story where there's plot A where something very specific happens. And there's a small subplot that's just added for a little interest, and there's nothing else. I really like interwoven layers mm. and depth and really complex characters and lots of things that happen that I can't neatly pinpoint. Like, oh, this is plot A. Oh, this is the subplot. And there's just so much going on in this story. It just feels so rich mm. and so much like real life, but the poetic kind that authors can turn the stuff of real experiences into and... I just love it. I think it says some really true things about people and their relationships. I'm going to try it. And, did you, you know, I don't know why it's reminding me of this, but did you ever read Tim Winton's The Riders? No, but should I? Based on my description of this and how yeah. much I love it? Yeah, uh, you know, I read it years and years ago, and he hasn't written that much since, but it's set in sort of the desolate Irish countryside. Mm-hmm. But I, and it sounds like like you, I like reading books that help me understand the motivations of people's behavior and the kind of complexity that their relationships bring and how they operate. And I don't reread books. We're going to come to that in a sec. But look for Tim Winton's The Writers. I'm not even sure if it's still in print, but it was such an evocative book. And what made me mention it is you talking about taking regular lives and telling the story, but with such poetic language. And I remember Tim Winton writing just that way. Well, I will give that a try. All right. I, I also know that this is just a matter of taste. I, I like books that are wistful and sad and haunting, mm. but I do not like books that are bleak. And I like the balance O'Farrell strikes in this one. That's a really good point because, like, I don't like happy books. <laughs> I like really dark books or at least that you use the term wistful. Yeah. I don't need things all tidied up at the end. I don't need there to be, you know, happily ever after. And I find myself slightly annoyed by happily ever after. No, I don't like I don't like happily ever after. But I don't like chaos and confusion. Either. As a writing style or as a subject of the book? Hmm. Really either way. I'm okay with bad things happening, 
Yeah. But I don't want all the things that happen to be bad. Yeah, you don't want it to be despair without any hope. That's true. I'm okay with sad, but I don't want to go into despair. Or if I do, I want it to be at the 80% mark, <laughs> not the last eight. Okay, I got that. And when, what prompts you to reread a book, and what do you find that rereading it does for you? I reread a book because I love it, especially if I really admire the style or the way it was done. So I've just written nonfiction so far. It's not like I need to craft a novel this year. But really, Roxanne, in general, I like to know how things are made. I like to hear how things work, whether that's somebody's business or, you know, my local parks district or how a novel is put together. Mm -hmm. I like to see how the author wove the tale to make me understand things Mm. when I understood them, make me feel the way I feel. And there are very few books that I actually want to reread, but the ones I do, I really enjoy rereading. Yeah, you know, there are books that I would like to reread. The pleasure that I receive from reading a new book is a bigger driver for me than rereading something because, like you, I'm sure like all readers, I'm like at least 5,000 books behind on what I want to get to, (laughs) right? So the idea of giving up a new book to reread, I don't know, it's an interesting balance. You know, the way you're talking about makes me more curious, but the books that I'm really curious to reread are the books that in my life I consider the important books. And I wonder Mm -hmm. if the book I considered important at 18 or 25, was it important because of the point in my life that I read it, or is it important in a universal, timeless way? I wonder that, too. There are some books, especially the ones I loved when I was younger, that I'm very curious to see what Mm. my today self would think. I'm a little afraid to find out. Wendy Lesser has a book that she wrote some years ago. She's an essayist, and I think the title of it was just Rereading. And one of the things that she talks about is you are visiting the age of you that existed when you read the book. So it informs you what your 18-year-old self was like, your 25-year-old self was. Exactly to your point, you know, maybe you do, maybe you don't want to know. And share with us what you do on the podcast. I think it's such a fun format. So share with our listeners exactly how it works. Well, we're devoted to book talk, reading recommendations, and literary matchmaking. So every week, a guest comes on and tells me three books they love, one book they don't, and what they're reading now, and I recommend three books they should read next. And then the matchmaking, how often do you do that? That was fascinating to me, too. I listened to a couple of those. We do that almost every episode, and... It can be a little nerve-wracking sometimes. Yeah. I mean, you do it of the moment. Of the moment. And I'm always afraid that when I sit down that this is going to be the day where I draw a blank. Yeah. And I have absolutely nothing. And it's especially nerve-wracking talking to professional book people like yourself who I feel like, oh, you've read everything. Of course, you know it's not true, right? (laughs) But it's more true than it is for many, many readers. What sort of guests do you have on? Like, do you invite just readers? Do you invite well-known people, authors, all of the above? We try to have a healthy variety of people who are professionals, either in the book industry or podcasters. Um, Sometimes old blogger friends that I've known from the interweb since 2011 but we also try to have at least half our guests be readers who 
love to read, not because it's their job, but mm. just because they love to read. Someone that you could think of as being your mom or your sister or your friend or your neighbor or your coworker. What's the matchmaking that you feel the most satisfied about? I love it when somebody comes away and says, I didn't know I'd be interested in a book that sounded like that. You know, I didn't know to look for a book with that plot line you're describing. Yeah. Or, you know, I've never heard of that author, but that book sounds perfect for me. I I love hearing that. You know, it's funny that you say that uh, one of the subsidiaries of R.J. Joy is a website called Just the Right Book, and it's a personalized uh, book of the month program. And what we love is getting these letters where they said, I never would have thought I wanted to read about X, but this was perfect. You know, when you can do that as a bookseller, that that's so delicious to me that you've given them a new direction to think about reading or, or just another way of thinking about what they might like that just makes them even more enthusiastic as readers. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Yes, that's a great way to put it. As a reader, I love to find that perfect title I didn't even know I was looking for. The example I always use about that is if I said to you, would you like to read about a uh, poor black woman in Baltimore in the 50s with ovarian cancer, you might say, gee, that does not sound really appealing. Yet, the story of Henrietta Lacks is way up there with one of my top books that was riveting on so many levels, but it isn't necessarily until it became such a huge bestseller, the kind of topic that you would think could be that compelling a book. That's a great example. You know, it seems to me that some of my favorite books, it's really difficult to describe them in any way that doesn't sound completely horrible. Yeah. Sometimes they just <laughs> sound boring, but sometimes... Like you just described, The Mortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. If you gave me that description, I'd think, who wants to read that? Right. The answer is me. Yeah, so that's what I think you do, and on the blog, I think you uh, do it on your podcast, because you flesh it out enough where it could pique someone's interest and and sort of seduce them to go outside of the, the black lines that they've accustomed to coloring in. Yeah, I mean, I hope to. I try to. Well, I'd say I'd say good job. So, and the question I like to ask all our guests uh, is, what's the book that changed your life? I feel like I have a whole a whole mental list of these in ways that are big and ways that are small. Give me an example of a book that changed your life in a big way and a book that changed your life in a small way. In a big way, I'm thinking of Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by mm. Annie Dillard. Yeah, I first read this as a college student and. I didn't know, despite reading The Writing Life in high school and really, really enjoying it, uh, that was shorter, that was a little bit different. But when I read Pilgrim, I just didn't know that writing could be like that. It, it defies genres. It was a Pulitzer winner. I don't know that I'd read a Pulitzer winner before. I thought that that was um, a little highbrow for me, probably. Mm. And I didn't know that I'd want to read hundreds of pages about the changing seasons in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Yeah. Like on the surface, it just didn't sound that interesting for me, but I love that book. And another way it really impacted me was that's the first time I really, really got how fun it was to talk with other readers at length about what was happening in the pages of a book. And I've been doing that for so long now that it sounds a little ridiculous to think that there ever was a time when I didn't understand how rewarding it could be to talk with fellow readers about the books I'm reading. But 
there was a time when I didn't know. And some of the best early discussions I ever had about the written word were about Pilgrim. And so it really opened my horizons to what writers could do with the written word and how readers could come together around the written word. And you were not a nature reader. You you wouldn't have thought that you would be attracted to a book steeped in nature. No. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was assigned reading. I think it was a writers on writing seminar. So we read Pilgrim and we read An American Childhood and we read The Writing Life again. And I just, I didn't know that was what I wanted to read about. I I love books that do that. I I just, you know, Donald Hall's poetry does that for me. We read that in that class. Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) And, and, you know, actually Annie Dillard's book did that as well because they both came out early in the years that I had opened the bookstore, and I read them out of a desire to broaden my reading and then was surprised at just how absorbed I was, which is about the kind of gifted poet and writer they respectively Mm -hmm. are. Uh, You know, and I thought about that because I recently read an essay about John McPhee because a new book of his came out. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go back and look at some of his books. Mm-hmm. I have his new one on my nightstand. All right. Maybe I haven't opened ke- it yet. All right. You're going to keep me posted me. about that, Anne. And what's a book that changed your life in a little way? I love Walkable City by Jeff Speck. Mm. It's nonfiction. The subtitle is How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time. But he talks about how the literal way we build our communities changes the way we interact with them and interact with each other. And for the same reason I reread, which is because I like to see how it's done. I like to see how things are made and how the structure impacts the experience. I'm fascinated by urban planning, not because I need to be professionally, but just I find it fascinating. Mm. But it's also inspired my husband and me to become more active in our community and actually have a say in those planning decisions that shape the way we live. First, we shape our buildings, and then our buildings shape us. And Jeff Speck talks about how the way we build our communities, like the physical things, like roads and sidewalks and roundabouts, changes the way we live. You know, I'm going to, I have not, I have not read that book, and I also nerd out about urban planning and how that impacts how we function. There was a set of books that came out, gee, probably decades ago. There was one for Rome and maybe one for London where you had a picture at the base of the book that was the earliest rendering of that city. And then there were like plastic overlays that showed you the city over period of time coming to the present. And every time I'm in a place, I want that about that place. Like, what did this look like in 1500s or 1600s? And why did they decide to put the road here? And why was the downtown here and the this there or... You know, that stuff just fascinates me because it's it matters so much. And, you know, in some centuries it was done casually and in other decades it was done very deliberately and maybe even unsuccessfully. But how the places we live come to be is so fascinating. You know, as somebody who runs a bookstore on like Main Street, Little Town America, um, I have one view of it, and I live in an urban environment. So I, I totally get that. Well, I would love to get my hands on those books you're describing. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Yes. 
We've been speaking with Ann Bogle, who is the blogger of the wildly popular blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy, and she is the podcast host of a fascinating show called What Should I Read Next, which actually every week answers that question. She's the author of a book called Reading People, and she has a new book coming out in 2018, Anne? Yes, that's right. And very active on all the social media outlets that are out there. And Anne, you know, I just want to thank you, A, for joining us on Just the Right Book, but all that you do for reading, because, you know, we obviously have people come into RJ Joya and they're, you know, they're carrying their notes from your blog or from your podcast. And, you know, the more people that are out there making people excited about reading, the better I think the country will be. Thanks for joining us, Anne. I appreciate you taking the time. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to today's guest. Please make sure to pick up a copy of Alice Hoffman's new book. You will be richly rewarded by reading Rules of Magic. And check out Anne's blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy, and her podcast, What Should I Read Next? For a complete list of all the books we talked about today, just go to bookpodcast.com. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Original music was created by Mark Berman. Many thanks to our producer, Christina Torres, and our sound engineer, Pat Keo. Thank you all so much for listening.